Hey, good morning. Uh, I'm Jamie Borchik. I'm a teaching pastor here at Park, and it is a joy to have you with us this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13 this morning. Um, there are also house Bibles in the back, and if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those with you today as a gift. We'd love for you to have a Bible so you can read it for yourself. Now, in the year of 1912, in April of that year, the largest ocean liner in the world set sail on its maiden voyage from the port of Southampton on the English coast, destined for New York City here in the U.S. And that ship, it was famously deemed unsinkable. And its passengers included many of the wealthiest and most famous people in the world at the time. Men like John Jacob Astor and Benjamin Guggenheim and Leonardo DiCaprio. Some of you didn't get that joke. <laughs> but for the first several days, the voyage was smooth. But then on the night of April 14th, the Titanic struck an iceberg about 400 miles off the coast of Newfoundland. And within a matter of hours, the ship had sunken into the icy depths of the North Atlantic. And over 1,500 people had perished. To this day, it remains the deadliest peacetime maritime disaster in the history of the world. Now, I'm assuming many of you are very familiar with this story, but what I did not know until recently, and what I'd imagine many of you may not know, was how easily it all could have been avoided. By 7.30 p.m. on the night of the sinking, the Titanic had already received at least five warnings of icebergs in the area from other ships that had passed before it. Early in the evening, the wireless operator aboard the ship took down a message that detailed heavy pack ice and a great number of bergs in the area but he never showed it to the captain. He was occupied sending passengers private correspondence and he didn't take the time to relay those warnings. And then at 10.55 p.m., less than an hour before the deadly accident took place, another nearby ship radioed to the Titanic and said that it had come to a full stop in the midst of a dense field of ice. And the radio operator received that message and he responded, shut up, shut up, I'm busy. And so it was that after ignoring all of those warnings, at 11.40 p.m. on the night of April 14th, the Titanic, still traveling at full speed, collided with this iceberg. You can see in this image, there's, uh, there's paint. The dark spots on the side are the paint from the Titanic. This image was taken the next day. And the rest of the story is tragic history. Now, as fascinating as I find shipwrecks, and as much as I love the movie Titanic, I don't just tell you this story because it's interesting. I tell you the story today because the lesson of this story is in fact the lesson of our text. We're preaching through 1 Corinthians. And when you preach through books of the Bible, sometimes you come to sobering passages. And our text today is a sobering passage. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13 is a series of warnings. The Apostle Paul is radioing to us, and he's saying, icebergs dead ahead. And the main point of this passage today is this. Don't be a spiritual Titanic. Don't be a spiritual Titanic. Now, I'd invite you to stand with me if you're able. And we're going to read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea 
And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Father, we thank you for your word, and I ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Would you speak to us through this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Can be seated. Now in the passage that Phil preached last Sunday from 1 Corinthians 9, Paul used himself as an example of self-sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And he finished that section at the end of 1 Corinthians 9 by saying, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul did not want his own ship to sink. And now in chapter 10, he turns to his readers and he gives us, he gives us some strong warnings because he does not want our ship to sink either. And just like with the Titanic, there are in fact five strong warnings in this text. And we'll talk about those warnings in a moment. But where Paul begins today is with a little history lesson that sets the context for those warnings. It has, been said that those who do not do, it has been said that those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. And Paul does not want his readers to repeat this history. So in verse 1 he writes, I do not want you to be unaware of some of your spiritual family history. That history is the history of the Exodus generation. If you don't know the story, around the 1400s BC, the Israelites were all slaves in Egypt. And God raised up a man named Moses. And Moses went and he led the Israelites out of slavery and eventually to the promised land. And Paul here calls that original Exodus generation our fathers. Spiritually speaking, those those of us who believe in Jesus today, we are the spiritual descendants of that generation. And look at what what Paul says was true of our fathers. In verse 1, he says, they all were under the cloud. So the cloud is the cloud of God's presence. And during the day for them, God's presence hovered over the people of Israel in the form of a cloud, protecting them from the blazing heat of the desert sun. And then at night, he took the form of a pillar of fire to protect them from the frigid cold of the desert nights. And all of the Israelites experienced the cloud of God's protective presence, all of them. They also all passed through the sea. 
So as they were running from Pharaoh and from his chariots, they came to the edge of the Red Sea, this large body of water. And God told Moses to put his staff in the water. And Moses put his staff in the water and the waters parted and dry ground appeared. And all of those Israelites walked across on dry ground. Verse 2. By virtue of that experience, they all, like Christians today, experienced a baptism. They took a journey through water where their past was buried and their enemies were drowned. And they were all brought out on the other side to a new life as a new kind of people. Verse 3, then they all tasted God's miraculous provision, the sweet bread, the manna that fell from heaven every day, and the sweet water that literally came out of a rock when they were thirsty. So God fed them all with donuts and Kool-Aid as they marched through the desert. The word all shows up five times in these four verses. And Paul is saying in all of this that all of that generation shared in the experience of God's salvation. God rescued them all. He protected them all. He provided for them all. Paul goes so far in verse 4 as to identify the rock from which they drank that Kool-Aid in the desert. He identifies the rock with Christ himself. Now he's not saying that the physical rock that God turned into a drinking fountain was Jesus. But what he is saying is that Jesus was the one who turned on the faucet for them. Jesus was with that generation, saving them. And so this is Paul's point. Our fathers living back then were just like us living right now. They were Old Testament believers. They were God's saved people. They were just like us. And if you're here today and you consider yourself a Christian, then what Paul's doing in this section is he's getting your attention. He wants you to see yourself in your spiritual fathers. They are you and you are they. So lock in, pay attention. And what happened to them? Well, do you remember what happened to that Exodus generation? Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the desert. Despite all that God had done for all of them, despite everything in verses one through four, most of that generation rebelled against God and did not make it to the promised land at all. Their kids did, but they themselves did not. Those who first tasted God's rescue ended up overthrown in the wilderness. The verb translated overthrown in verse five literally means to be strewn about. Paul is deliberately using this graphic imagery of bodies scattered in the desert because that's what happened to most of them. And most of them here is a vast and masterful understatement. If you know the story, you know that in the end, only two adults out of that entire generation ultimately make it into the promised land. It's Joshua and Caleb. That's it. Every single other adult who God rescued out of Egypt ended up strewn about in the desert. They thought they were unsinkable, and yet their ship was sunk. And all of this is to set up the context for the warnings that come next. Because we are just like them, and Paul does not want our ship to be sunk. 
In verse 6, and again in verse 11, you'll see the word example. So bracketing the warnings that come in verses 7 through 10 is this word example. And the Greek word here is the word tupos, from which we get our English word type, as in archetype. It's an example that prefigures or foreshadows something that is to come. It's like a mold or a pattern into which liquid can be poured in order to be shaped into a particular shape. So it's kind of like an elaborate ice cube tray. And Paul is saying here that that mold exists. There is a mold in the shape of our fathers, a mold in the shape of the Exodus generation, whereby those who have tasted God's salvation still rebel against him and end up scattered about in the desert. And he's saying to us, don't let your life get poured into that mold. Don't let your life get poured into that mold. Don't be like them. And so he gives us these warnings. In verses 7 through 10, we see four specific warnings. Then there's a fifth summary warning as well in verse 12. But verses 7 through 10 are the core of Paul's distress signals coming in our direction. And each of these four warnings follows the same pattern. It begins with a do not or we must not do X. And then it says, as some of them were or as some of them did. And then it's followed by a specific example from that Exodus generation. And the examples Paul gives, those examples, they show us why our fathers all ended up strewn about in the desert. The first example in verse 7 comes from the very beginning of the Exodus narrative. It's the famous story of Israel's idolatry with the golden calf in Exodus 32. The second example in verse 8 comes from Numbers 25 at the very end of the Exodus narrative. It's this crazy story where Israel is on the, on the edge of the promised land 40 years later. 40 years have passed. Now they're on the brink of going into the promised land. And yet they have this kind of crazy pagan sex party with the people of Moab. And these two scenes of national apostasy, they bookend the entire Exodus narrative. And then the last two examples Paul gives in verses 8 and 9, they come from the 40 years in between where Israel repeatedly did what God told them not to do and then complained about it over and over and over again. And the end result, time and again for all of that, was death and destruction for the guilty parties. And in the end, most of them end up overthrown in the wilderness. And Paul is pulling these examples together because this is what happened to our fathers. They failed at the end, they failed at the beginning, they failed at the end, and they failed over and over again all the way through in between. And that's why their ship was sunk. And Paul does not want that for us. And so he warns us. Church, this is a hard word today. But God does not want your ship to be sunk. And Paul does not want your ship to be sunk. I don't want your ship to be sunk. And so I need you this morning to listen to these distress signals. I need you to listen here. Take a look at these warnings that Paul gives us. Verse 7, do not be idolaters. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test. Verse 10, do not grumble. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing Christ, grumbling, These are the four icebergs that Paul warns us about here. And what exactly are these four icebergs? We'll look at them a little more closely. 
The first iceberg is idolatry. You know, in our modern world, we don't tend to pay much attention to idols. Most of us are not very tempted to bow down and worship a golden statue or a metal object. And yet idolatry is very much alive and well today. I find Martin Luther's definition of idolatry particularly helpful. Martin Luther wrote this. He said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. So what I want you to do right now is I want you to close your eyes. So close your eyes where you're sitting. And I want you to imagine for a moment that you are drowning in an ocean. The ocean represents your life. And you're drowning and you're reaching for a life preserver. You're reaching out for something that could rescue you. There's something out there that can save you, that can lift you out and rescue you. And you reach out and you take hold of it. And the question right now is what is that thing? What is that thing that you reach out for to hold on to to rescue you in this life? Is it your career? Like if you can be successful enough, if you can earn enough money or rise to a high enough position, will that save you? Is it your family? Like if your marriage is strong, if your children are well behaved or successful in life, if if your family is happy and looks good to outsiders, will that do it? Is it a relationship? Like if only you can meet someone, if only you find a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, that's the thing. Is it the ideology of your political party? Is it the rightness of your positions or your opinions? Is it your race or your sexuality or sex or power or status or wealth or approval or likes on Instagram? What does your heart cling to and rely upon? What are you holding on to for rescue? You can open your eyes. Whatever that thing is, whatever you see yourself holding on to, that's your real God. That is your functional God. And if that thing is not the God of the Bible, then you are an idolater. The second iceberg is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality has been one of the major themes of 1 Corinthians so far as we've walked through this book. And the word translated sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our word porn from. And what it is is a junk drawer kind of term for any kind of sexual activity that takes place outside the context of a married man to his married wife, a man and a woman inside the context of marriage. So porneia today, to give just a few examples, would include looking at porn, watching sexual content on social media channels or on Netflix, indulging in sexual fantasies in your mind, fooling around with a girlfriend or a boyfriend, hooking up, sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. All of that would constitute porneia. And in our culture today, sex is very casual. We play around with sexual immorality all the time. That stuff that I just described is very normal in our culture. But the example Paul cites here in verse 8 shows God taking out over 20,000 people in a single day because of their sexual immorality. See, unlike us, God doesn't play with sexual immorality. For him, it's deadly serious. It is an iceberg that will sink your ship. 
Now, it's really interesting to notice here and elsewhere in 1 Corinthians and throughout the Bible how frequently idolatry and sexual immorality show up together. And that's because what we do in worship parallels what we do in the bedroom. Sex is a proxy for worship. People who change their sexual partners have a much easier time changing their gods and vice versa. And faithfulness in the bedroom correlates to faithfulness in worship. And Paul knows that. And so he warns us strongly against both idolatry and sexual immorality. The third iceberg is testing Christ. And to test Christ is to test his patience. It's like what kids do with parents when parents repeatedly tell them not to do something and then they continually do the thing you just told them not to do. Right? Like, you know it's wrong, but you're going to do it anyway. I didn't hear you. I wasn't listening. I don't care what you said. I'm going to do it anyway. Any parents have that experience with your children? Only us? Okay. But when you repeatedly do the things God has clearly told you not to do, when you repeatedly disobey God by sleeping with people you're not married to, by holding on to your wealth and refusing to be generous, by overindulging in alcohol or drugs, by taking what is not yours, by gossiping or slandering, by mistreating the people around you. When you persistently disobey God, you are testing him. And y'all, God God is really, really, really patient with us. Like he put up with this kind of behavior from Israel for 40 years in the desert, 40 years of repeated instances before he finally took them out. But there is a breaking point Like if you ram your ship into the iceberg often enough, eventually it's going to punch a hole in the hull and you're going to sink. So don't test Christ. And then the fourth iceberg is grumbling. Grumbling is complaining. It's whining and moaning and groaning that what God has done for you, what God has given you, is not enough. Now, grumbling may seem out of place here in comparison to idolatry or sexual morality or repeated disobedience like grumbling like is complaining really that big a deal well yes it is and the reason for that is because grumbling reveals something about your heart you see Paul lists here four icebergs that'll sink your ship but here's the thing about an iceberg what you see above the surface is just a fraction of the whole most of an iceberg is beneath the surface And underneath the surface, all four of these things, including grumbling, have something deeper and larger that they share in common. These four specific points are like jagged shoots of ice that stick up above the surface. But they all emerge from a shared bulk that is beneath the surface. And you see what is beneath the surface in verse 6. Do you see it? It's that little word, desire. Desire. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, what is desire? Desire is not just a little want. Desire is a longing. It's a craving. It's an insatiable appetite. And beneath the surface of every sin is always an iceberg of desire. This is what sank Adam and Eve in the garden. Like rather than than desiring God, they desired the forbidden fruit. This is what sank the Israelites in the desert. They desired other gods and other lovers and other food and other drink. And desire is ultimately what sinks us too. We desire things other than God and what he has provided for us. And we grumble when we don't get them. 
You see, grumbling is an indicator that God is not enough for us. Now, in our culture, desiring things other than God is very normal. This evening, many of you will watch the Super Bowl. Who's planning to watch the the game today? Yeah, most of you are going to watch the Super Bowl later on today. And you may not have watched a single football game all season long, but tonight you're going to watch the Super Bowl. And the reason you're going to do that is in part because you want to see the commercials. And how do commercials work? Well, commercials play on your desires. They prick your appetites and they prompt your cravings and they promote the desire for more within you. Commercials are crafted to make you feel like you're missing out on what you were really made for. And if you'll spend your money to get the more they're offering you, then your cravings will be quenched and your appetite will be satisfied and all your desires will be no more. You will never need, you'll never need another thing if you just get this thing. Except anyone who has ever bought anything knows that it doesn't actually work that way. Because no bag of Doritos, no new Jeep, no winning bet on DraftKings, no new low mortgage rate on a new house, no new relationship, no sexual encounter, no number of promotions, no amount of money in the bank, none of that will ever ultimately satisfy your deepest cravings. You will always want more. And even when you get that thing that you thought you wanted, you'll find yourself grumbling all over again when it wears off. See, chasing desire apart from God is like eating sugar hoping it will fill you up. You eat and you eat and you eat and you eat and it's never enough and you're never full. Only God can fill you up. We were made to desire him. And when we don't, when we desire things other than him, it never satisfies. Now you notice in verse six that Paul uses a very strong word to characterize these desires. He uses the word evil. And what we're doing when we replace God with lesser things is nothing less than evil itself. When we set our desires on evil rather than on God, we bring destruction into the world. And let me give you just one example from our text. Let me do a little thought experiment with you right now. So just imagine for a moment If everyone on the planet simultaneously agreed to obey the command in verse 8, just imagine if all sexual immorality suddenly ceased. Like sex only happened inside the context of one man married to one woman. Everyone agrees, everyone does it, miraculously it happens. What would change in our world? What would be different? Well, adultery would vanish. Cheating would be no more. Divorce rates would plummet. Marriages would be healthier. Children would grow up in a home with both a mom and a dad there. Husbands would set their eyes on their wives instead of on the flickering pixels generated by a flickering computer screen. STDs would disappear. AIDS would be gone. Sex trafficking would be over. The Me Too movement would become unnecessary. Sexual abuse and assault and rape would stop. Boys and girls and women and men could develop healthy non-sexual friendships where they're not just thinking about how to get the other person in bed. Women and children would be safer in the world. And that's to say nothing of what would happen to all the guilt and shame that sexual immorality produces in so many of us that future generations would be spared of. 
All of that is the destruction that is wrought on the world because of sexual immorality. And all of that would be different if we just obeyed verse 8. And that's just verse 8. Here's the point. Sin is destructive. What sin does, whether it is idolatry or sexual immorality or something that seems harmless like grumbling, sin in all of its forms is fundamentally destructive. It wreaks havoc in our lives, it wrecks our world, and it ultimately sinks our ship. And God does not want that for us. And so he warns us against it. Verse 12 is a final summary warning. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The word fall here is the same word used back in verse 8 to describe what happened to the 20,000 plus who died in one day due to their sexual immorality. Paul's point is that we have these examples in Scripture. And if that can happen to people who walked across the dry ground through the Red Sea, if that can happen to people who ate manna and drank rock water, if that can happen to people who saw the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, shoot, if that can happen to people who, who, who were literally looking at the cloud and the fire when they did it, if it can happen to them, then it can certainly happen to you. And so Paul says, take heed. Take heed. This is your final distress signal blaring in your direction. Watch out. Look out. Be careful. There are icebergs out there that will sink you. Look out for them. Don't let it happen. Now most of this text... It consists of very strong warnings. But there remains one verse we've not yet discussed. And there is a remarkable contrast here between verses 12 and verse 13. The first 12 verses are all these warnings. But verse 13 is a sweet assurance. Look at it with me. Verse 13 begins... No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Do you know what that means? It means that if you are sitting here right now and you are concerned for your soul because you see yourself in this passage, you are not alone. You are not alone. In fact, we're going to do something right now that might at first be a little bit uncomfortable for some of you. But right now, If you struggle with any of the things we've talked about today, if you struggle with idolatry or sexual immorality or testing God or grumbling, if any of those things are part of your life in any way right now, would you just stand where you are? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You are not alone. You're not alone. Consent. Verse 13 goes on. And to people like us, 
who deal with common temptations like these, Paul tells us something beautiful about God. God is, what's that word? God is faithful. See, this whole passage has been showing us that we are not faithful. But do you know who is faithful? God is faithful. And the supreme proof of his faithfulness is the cross of Jesus Christ. Where the rock that followed Israel through the wilderness, providing for them all those years before, where that rock was shattered to provide the water of eternal life to all who would come and drink of him. For our idolatry and our immorality and our testing and our grumbling, what we deserve is the cross. But Jesus took the cross and he went down into the grave to bury our failures and to destroy our enemies of sin and death. His ship was sunk so that ours does not have to be. And then he rose from the grave and he offered us new life and a new relationship with God on the other side of the water. Because God is faithful. And because God is faithful, Paul continues, he will not let you be tempted beyond your own ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This world is full of temptations. There are icebergs everywhere. And yet God always, always provides a way out of the ice field. To change the analogy, on the highway of life, when there's a bridge out up ahead, God always provides an exit ramp. He always provides an exit ramp. He puts up warning signs way in advance that say, heads up, watch out, look out. And then he provides exit ramps, off ramps, ways you can get out. There's always a way of escape. If you'll look for it and if you'll take it, it's always there. And y'all, this sermon today, for some of you, it might just be your exit ramp. Some of you right now are dealing with some of these icebergs in a very real way. And if that is you today, you need to take some very deliberate action right now to change course. You might need to cut up a credit card so you stop frivolously spending. You might need to get a dumb phone so you can't access porn anymore from your smartphone. You might need to dump that girlfriend or that boyfriend. You might need to do any number of things today that would change course and send you in a different direction. But here's the first thing you need to do. The first thing you need to do today is you need to tell someone about it. You need to tell someone about it. You saw a moment ago that you were very clearly not alone. There are many others in this room dealing with the same temptations. And if you are staring at this iceberg that's about to sink your ship, you need help to turn the ship around and change course. So you have to tell somebody. It could be your small group leader. It could be a friend who's sitting next to you right now. It could be someone you got to pick up the phone and call later on. Or after service, it might be just coming up front and talking to me or one of our deacons or elders who will be up here to pray with you. But you need to tell someone. And so don't leave here today without telling someone and getting some help. The radio operator aboard the Titanic on that fateful night heard the final warning message. And do you remember his response? He said, shut up, shut up, I'm busy. Y'all, today God has faithfully sent his warning messages. So don't leave here today saying, shut up. Instead, hear and heed what he is saying to you. Because God is the best thing. 
And he wants good things for you. And he alone can make your ship float for eternity. And the sweet assurance of this passage today is that if you will just take hold of him, he will lift you up out of the waters. If you will just listen to him, he will ensure that you sail safely through. The warnings in this passage are real, but so too is the assurance. God is faithful. And so let go of whatever else you're clinging to and take hold of him today. And so here's where we're going to finish. Because all of us deal with many of these temptations, we are not alone. And so today we're going to finish with a corporate confession. And then we're going to sing together about the faithfulness of our great God. So on the screen right now, you're going to see some words. And I will read the words that are in regular text, and you collectively will read aloud the words that are in bold. And so please stand with me as we confess before our faithful God. Almighty God, we confess your goodness and your greatness. We are sorry for the idols we have worshipped. We are sorry for the sexual immorality we have engaged in. We are sorry for the many ways we have tested you. We are sorry for our grumbling and complaining. We are sorry that we desire evil rather than desiring you. Now take a moment and pray silently confessing your personal sins to the Lord. Almighty God, we confess your goodness and your greatness. We thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for all of our sin. We thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to dwell within us and empower us to walk with you. We thank you for offering to sinners like us the undeserved gift of an everlasting relationship with you. And we thank you for always, always providing a way of escape. Help us, God, to always take the way of escape that you provide. Thank you that you are faithful and you will do it. Amen.